This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Cholly, bringing you another bonus episode Every week this year, we are bringing you a different leader of the opposition. Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies talking us through a different one. And every month, we put them all together into a special podcast treat. Leader of the pack. Hello from the other side. I'm a loser, baby. First up, it's Granville Leveson Gower, second Earl of Granville. Who was leader of the opposition um, in the House of Lords uh, no fewer than five times. Um, he was a long-serving leader of the Liberal Party um, in the Lords. Um, and his times in opposition there spanned a sort of total of 33 years. So he's quite a significant um, figure. Um, another aristocrat, we're back to sort of Eton and Oxford as uh, his background related to most of the, <laughs> most never of the nobility. Changed. No, exactly. We're back to that. Um, and uh, he was then elected, as a lot of them were, um, to, first of all, to the House of Commons, where he sat um, for 10 years from um, 1836 um, until he, his father died and he went to the, the Lords. Um, during the period he was in the Commons, he was known as Lord Leveson, which um, might um, put a, a, a chill down the spine of, um, of certain people in the media. Um, he also um, picked up a nickname, which is perhaps relevant to your um, use of the Are You Being Served uh, theme music. He was called Pussy, uh, as in Pussycat, for some reason, uh, which I haven't been able to establish. Um, but given what you've just said about cats, perhaps that um, biases you against him. So I don't think we'll dwell on that. <laughs> um, uh, he served briefly um, in the Foreign Office uh, in Lord Melbourne's government, um, uh, and that, then he went to the House of Lords. Um, and at the time, um, the Whigs were in government follow, following the um, Conservative split over the Corn Laws that we've talked about um, in recent uh, weeks. Um, and whilst the protectionists uh, on the Conservative side were um, against the repeal of the, the Corn Laws, he was very much in favour of free trade, made his first speech in the Lords um, on that subject. And he was actually also then made uh, Vice President uh, of the Board of Trade and took a leading role in promoting the Great Exhibition in 1851. He worked with the Prince Consort on that and, and that sort of helped make his reputation. Um, and then he was briefly foreign secretary for just two months um, until February 1852. One of these ones who um, made it to sort of high office and then uh, lost it fairly um, quickly. Um, but he then became leader of the, the Whigs in the House of Lords when Palmerston was uh, prime minister in the Commons, which meant that when that government fell, uh, he became uh, leader of the opposition for the first time. 
uh, in the upper house. Um, and I found some letters that he wrote at that time where he, he unlike a lot of um, leaders, seemed to actually enjoy being in opposition. And he said, uh, it's odd that opposition makes me more shy than being in government. But he also said that he was uh, rather enjoying it. And uh, despite the fact that he hadn't made any decent speeches that year, he seemed to be uh, commanding the support of his colleagues. Um, so over the rest of his career, he's one of these people, when we talk about it, it should have been me. Um, he <laughs> he really sort of was one of the nearly men. There were um, several times he was foreign secretary twice more during his career uh, in the following decades. Um, but there were three occasions when he nearly nearly became prime minister um there was um an occasion when there was a sort of dispute um between uh who should be about who should be um prime minister it was uh, between lord john russell and palmerston uh, and queen victoria actually sent for for granville uh, as a compromise candidate um, but russell refused to serve under him and so palmerston became prime minister again and that happened a couple more times he was a very senior figure and so when the liberals formed governments he was often talked of as being a potential prime minister um, but he was rather overshadowed by the fact that during his later career Gladstone was the sort of coming man in the Commons, and so he became the overall uh, leader of the Liberals uh, in, from the Commons, and uh, and so obviously he became Prime Minister um, and rather overshadowed um, Granville. That was Granville Leveson Gower, second Earl Granville. Up next in our trawl of leaders of the opposition is James Harris, the third Earl of Malmesbury. It's a bit of a, a bit of a trick this one because um, he was leader of the opposition in the House of Lords for about two months. Um, but because we're not looking at those who actually became prime minister, we're into the era here of Gladstone and Disraeli. And of course, both of them um, became prime minister, but also both of them were in the House of Commons, uh, at least initially. So um, the leadership of the House of Lords at this time, uh, clearly there was an expectation that the prime minister could come from the House of Lords or the House of Commons. So this is why we're into these somewhat obscure peers <laughs> who are sort of cropping up on our list at the moment. Um, but uh, the Earl of Malmesbury, um, he was born in um, 1807, um, educated at Eton and Oxford, no surprise there. Um, and then spent uh, quite a lot of time on his sort of grand tour on the, the continent, um, where he seemed to be um, something of a man of leisure. Um, he he established some quite um, interesting friendships, including um, with uh, Lord Byron's last mistress. And I'm trying to work out from the um, phrasing in some of his biographies and, and memoirs whether there was more to it than that. But uh, certainly he's uh, he's noted as having liked the ladies. So um, it's possible that um, there's more than a friendship <laughs> going on there with, uh, with Byron's last mistress. Um, but also he struck up a friendship with Prince Louis Napoleon of France, uh, who was then in exile. Um, and this was a, a long lasting friendship. Um, he later became um, Napoleon III, uh, Emperor of France. Um, and that was quite important later on because um, James, uh, the Earl of Marjorie, became uh, foreign secretary later on in his career at a time when there were tensions with Russia uh, and also with uh, France. And that was quite an important uh, relationship um, just in the run up to the Crimea War. So um, that was an early friendship that he made. And he actually went to visit uh, Louis Napoleon um, in prison when he was um, he's, he was being sort of held in prison in exile then. Um, so. He, like many of the sort of heirs to uh, great titles, um, as we've seen before, he went and was elected uh, to the House of Commons, but only very briefly uh, in 1841, because he then succeeded to the peerage and went to the House of Lords. And like many sort of peers, he, he didn't take much of a role in politics. But as we've we've seen from some of the previous ones, he um, was radicalised by um, the Corn Laws, the um, 
the row with um, within the Conservative Party uh, and the fall of uh, Robert Peel over that issue. And he was very much uh, I've just been interrupted by my cat, um, <laughs> which is uh, it's just a it's just a riposte to you, Matt. Uh, I know how much I know. you love cats. Well, I'm glad that's why I'm glad you're on Zoom and you haven't bought it in. Um, <laughs> the thing is that the Corn Laws thing is plays such a pivotal. Oh, we really have. Look at the cat; it's walking around everywhere. <laughs> it's a co-presenter. Um, <laughs> as long as it doesn't ask for a fee, that's fine. Um, the uh, the Corn Laws are such a pivotal part in British politics, aren't they? Uh, just just briefly um, explain to listeners uh, what it was all about and why it drove such a wedge to the Tory Party. Well, this was basically when uh, it, it's very similar to some of the rounds over Brexit. Uh, you can overdo those comparisons, but it was of a similar sort of scale. This was uh, an attempt by Robert Peel to. Uh, cut the import duties on um, corn to uh, help cut prices by sort of allowing cheap imports. And so there was a huge split within the uh, within um, politics, but mainly within the Conservative Party between those who were in favour of free trade and cutting those duties um, and those who were protectionists who wanted uh, to keep them. And the ones who wanted to keep them tended to be those who wanted to protect the sort of the landed interest, um, farmers, um, but also landowners who obviously benefited from um, higher prices. Um, and so like many aristocrats and others, he was um, on the side of the protectionists. Um, and as we uh, discussed in, in previous weeks, the Earl of Derby, um, along with Benjamin Disraeli, was sort of at the, the head of the protectionist uh, wing of the Conservative Party, which then split off and became the sort of the mainstream Conservative Party. Um, and Malmesbury was very much allied to them, and that's what really brought him into politics. And he ended up acting in the House of Lords as a sort of whip to, to that um, section of the party, helped by the fact that he was a great friend of Lord Stanley. He was a lifelong friend of him. Um, when he became uh, Prime Minister, he had two brief periods in, in government in 1852 and 1858. Um, and Malmesbury became Foreign Secretary during those, those, those governments. So he was quite close to him. And there is this rivalry with Disraeli, who, of course, was in the lead in the House of Commons and gradually over this period eventually ended up um, becoming sort of leader of the Conservatives and, and Prime Minister. He really fancied himself as being Foreign Secretary in 1852. Um, and so when Malmesbury was appointed, he wasn't terribly happy about that. And you do sense this kind of um, the, both between uh, Lord Derby, but also with Malmesbury. Um, they didn't really trust Israeli. They thought he was a bit of a chancer. Uh, they thought he was untrustworthy. Um, uh, a few um, references in um, some of the memoirs to the fact that, um, shockingly, apparently, Disraeli lied uh, about certain things um, <laughs> and uh, couldn't be trusted to tell that the truth. That seems very unlikely in a politician. It's very unlikely. I mean, you know, in those days, you could get away with it. But um, he, was, um, uh, he was seen as a sort of um, rather unreliable character character so this is a sort of a lifelong um rivalry that they had you're listening to the red box podcast we'll do two more leaders of the opposition after this when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. We continue our trawl of leaders of the opposition. We've had James Harris, the third Earl of Malmesbury. Next is Lord Cairns. Hugh Cairns, um, who became Conservative leader of the opposition in the House of Lords in 1869. Um, and like many of those that we're looking at in this period, it isn't that job that he's remembered for, because uh, later on he was quite a well-regarded Lord Chancellor. Um but in a nice change from the series of born aristocrats that we've had recently, he wasn't from a noble family. He was actually born in County Down in Northern Ireland uh, in 1817 as the son of an army captain. And whilst they were fairly well off, um, they weren't aristocrats. So he attended school in Belfast um, before going off to study classics at Trinity College Dublin. And um, it's quite clear that he was highly intelligent and something of a child prodigy. He'd apparently delivered a public lecture on chemistry at the age of eight, which is uh, rather <laughs> um, bizarre. Um, but it's uh, a mark of, of his um, intelligence. And this is something that marked him throughout his career. He was a very able man. And his family were devout Protestants. And his father had wanted him uh, originally to go into the church. But it, instead of that, he studied law and was called to the bar in 1844 uh, in Middle Temple in London, where he began uh, practice as a barrister. And then in 1852, uh, he made the most of his hometown connections and was elected to the House of Commons as MP for Belfast uh, and pursued politics then alongside a legal career. And this is rather an odd thing because he uh, later on became quite a senior judge at the same time as being a member of the House of Lords uh, and a politician. I don't think you could really do that today. Um, He became a QC then in 1856. And in Lord Derby's um, first brief government, uh, he was appointed Solicitor General um, then in 1858. So um, he took a leading role then in opposition to the Liberal government over the next eight years. And when Lord Derby formed his next government in 1866, uh, he was then promoted a bit in the sort of legal officers uh, field and became Attorney General. And he then accepted a peerage. Um, He resisted that up until that point, because at that time, there was a view that you had to have sort of substantial personal wealth and and means to preserve the dignity of a peerage. And he didn't feel that he qualified for that, but he was uh, prevailed upon to take a a peerage at that time. Uh, And that meant that uh, being in the House of Lords, when Disraeli took over uh, from Lord Derby as Prime Minister in 1868, uh, he was able to make Cairns um, his Lord Chancellor. So he became Lord Chancellor for the first time then. um, And that government lasted, as we heard last week, less than a year. Um, and when that fell, Lord Malmesbury, who we previously talked about, didn't hang around very long. Um, he he really just sort of um, disappeared off after a few months. Um, and there was a vacancy then for the leader of the Conservatives in the Lords. Uh, and that's when Cairns became uh, leader of the opposition. So uh, he wasn't a great success in the role, it has to be said. Um, <laughs> he was, like many of the leaders of the opposition, it's, it's quite interesting how people in the 19th century seem to have had much more of a... Um, a clear view of their own limitations, perhaps, than politicians today. <laughs> Surely uh, not. He, 
um, he and and various others that we've we've looked at concluded that they weren't sort of um, cut out for it. Um, so he lasted uh, about a year, um, and it was really his failure to deal with the issue of the proposed disestablishment of the Church of Ireland uh, that was one of the main issues. He didn't win the concessions from the government that he he wanted to, uh, and felt that he'd failed. So clearly, that was an issue that was very um, close to his heart as a, a strong um, Protestant. Um, so he resigned from the leadership. And after a bit of wrangling, um, the Duke of Richmond took over as leader in the House of Lords. Disraeli, of course, was still dominant then as the leader of the Conservatives in the House of Commons. Uh, and so that the leader in the House of Lords was still a rather um, uh, inferior figure. But um, the Duke of Richmond, uh, a proper aristo, um, took over as leader, but he wasn't anywhere near as able and intelligent as Cairns. So he heavily relied on his advice. Disraeli also, I think, came to recognize his um his skills but never really liked him he was known to mock his his religious faith um on occasion as well but um when disraeli died in um, 1880 cairns was thought of as being someone who might be able to take over from him but it was actually another lord another uh, aristocrat who did take over lord salisbury and he did go go on to become prime minister so we've got another proper it could have been me moment where cairns <laughs> could have become the conservative leader and prime minister from the house of lords but didn't that was Lord Cairns, and our final leader of the opposition for this month is Charles Gordon Lennox, the sixth Duke of Richmond. And so after um, a, uh, a little break last week where we had someone who wasn't born as a, an aristocrat, um, this week we're, we're back, back at to it, a, back at it, back at it again, yeah, with a, with a, a proper one and a, and a duke, no less. Um, oh. So he was born at, um, eight, in 1818 um, at Richmond House on Whitehall, which is... Uh, more recently known, I think, as the HQ of the Department of Health until um, they moved. Yeah, yeah um, and that was the London residence of the Dukes of Richmond. Um, his father was the fifth Duke. So as uh, his heir, uh, Charles, was known as the Earl of March until he succeeded to the title. Uh, he was educated at Westminster School, which makes a nice change from Eton, uh, and then on to Oxford, <laughs> um, and then joined the army, uh, becoming a captain uh, in the Horse Guards, uh, and was then, whilst he was serving there, was elected to the House of Commons uh, as a Conservative MP for West Sussex in 1841. So he was around in the Commons during the... Uh, debates over the Corn Laws, um, which we talked about a bit in the in, in the previous weeks. Um, he was uh, um, continuing with his military career at the same time and was um, actually appointed as um, aide-de-camp to uh, the Duke of Wellington, who uh, was uh, the holder of an honorary post at the time as Commander-in-Chief of the Army. So he combined those two things. Um, but he developed a specialism in agriculture policy, which was quite relevant to the, the Corn Law debates. Um, and he joined his father, who was then the uh, the Duke, uh, of Richmond uh, as a supporter of the protectionist wing and uh, he joined the government for a few months as president of the poor law board in Lord Derby's uh, brief second government in 1859. Um, he then succeeded his father as the Duke of Richmond the following year um, and was then again in government when Lord Derby formed uh, his government uh, in 1867. He became president of the Board of Trade and continued in office for a short time then when Disraeli became prime minister. Um, so this is the time, as we talked about, where Disraeli and Gladstone were fighting out in the House of Commons. And so the Lords was perhaps slightly second fiddle in terms of the political debate. But um, once that government fell, as we talked about last week, Lord Cairns was Conservative leader in the Lords for just a year um, and then resigned in 1870. And so the party turned to what they thought was a safe pair of hands, uh, a, a Tory duke, Duke of Richmond, um, and he led the party there for the next 
four years in opposition and then for another two years in government. And um, how long is it before we, we see the, the sort of amalgamation between Lords and Commons leaders? Um, well, that starts to happen. Um, it's slightly complicated by the fact that we get um, the Marquess of Salisbury uh, becoming Prime Minister a bit later in um, the 19th century. Um, and of course, he's um, the last Prime Minister to be Prime Minister from the House of Lords. So yeah. once that starts to happen, and we'll talk about, I think, next week, um, there was a, a bit of a, um, a sort of tussle between the leader in the Commons and the leader in the Lords, particularly when they're in opposition. It's not always obvious who, who the preeminent person is. Um, but as as leader, he lasted four years in opposition and then carried on into government. So he wasn't quite as, as much of a failure as some of those that we've we've talked about. Um, but he wasn't terribly impressive. Um, Disraeli's biographer described him as an amiable but ineffective non-entity, um, and his his obituary was slightly kinder. It said that if his speeches never rose to oratory, uh, they and the party tactics they expressed were correct and often statesmanlike, which is, I think, damning with faint praise. Um, but he was quite influential. And as you've touched on there, um, being leader of the opposition in the House of Lords, when a lot of the action is in the House of Commons, is quite an interesting position because the Conservatives had a majority in the House of Lords. And actually, there was one incident that's um, noted where he got into quite a slanging match in the House of Lords, where he was accused of despotism for rallying his troops to defeat the government in the House of Lords um, against their better judgment. Uh, and he angrily rejected that. I think maybe had he been around 100 years earlier, he may have challenged someone to a duel. Uh, <laughs> but he didn't. Um, they moved on from that. So um, he, he simply sort of rose and uh, angrily sort of rejected this charge that he was was doing that. But it's an interesting point that although he was leader of the opposition, he actually had more votes in the House of Lords than, than the government did. Um, so he, he went on to become um, uh, leader of the House of Lords in government when Disraeli formed his next government. And again, he's one of the, the nearly men. He could have become prime minister. Uh, and there was talk even in 1874 that he might sort of succeed when Disraeli resigned if he had to resign through ill health. But the Marquess of Salisbury wrote uh, to a colleague that um, it must not be allowed. The Duke is unfit for the post and that his, his appointment would justify the title of the stupid party of being applied to us. So clearly <laughs> he didn't have that many fans. And that brings us to the end of this month's special roundup of our Leaders of the Opposition. You can catch Nigel Fletcher live every Monday at about quarter to twelve where he'll bring us another Leader of the Opposition or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.